If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 21, 2021. The podcast that invented Venetian sunglasses. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's defeminize the news of the bogus. We've all seen how Joe Biden rage quits whenever he's asked even a mildly challenging question. And his press secretary, Jen Psaki, is being referred to by the internet as Jen Circleback for answering anything resembling a difficult question with a promise to circle back to it. Just so you know, circle back apparently means you'll never hear anything about it ever again. But that's nothing compared to what Biden's deputy press secretary, T.J. Ducklow, did to journalist Tara Palmieri of Politico. People magazine revealed that Ducklow had been dating Alexi McCammond, a political reporter with Axios who covered the Biden campaign. On Inauguration Day, Palmieri had contacted McCammond for comment. One of her colleagues at Politico's Playbook left a message for Ducklow. Ducklow called Playbook to try and stop the story, but he was told to contact the reporters. So he called Palmieri and tried to intimidate and bully her in a conversation that included the words, I will destroy you, and threatening to ruin her reputation if she published it. During the call, Ducklow reportedly made derogatory and misogynistic comments, saying she was only reporting on the relationship, which is newsworthy being a blatant conflict of interest, because she was jealous that some unidentified man in the past, quote, wanted to fuck McCammond and not you. He also said she was being jealous of his relationship with McCammond. Quick question. If fight for your country is an impeachable offense, shouldn't I will destroy you qualify as well? So Politico reached out to the White House regarding the threats, which included conversations with Jen Circleback, White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield, and Biden Senior Advisor Anita Dunn. White House officials acknowledged that Ducklow's behavior was inappropriate and said he would issue an apology. In a different conversation, White House officials attacked Palmieri by accusing her of revealing comments that had been said off the record. Rule 1, there is no off the record when it comes to speaking with reporters. Politico responded that the conversation had only been revealed to the editors. So, they published. Afterward, Circleback said, quote, T.J. Ducklow has apologized to the reporter with whom he had a heated conversation about his personal life. He is the first to acknowledge this is not the standard of behavior set out by the president. In addition to his initial apology, he has sent the reporter a personal note expressing his profound regret. With the approval of the White House Chief of Staff, he has been placed on a one-week suspension without pay. In addition, when he returns, he will no longer be assigned to work with any reporters at Politico. Yeah, because that's the problem. Sorry, but if you have a deputy press secretary who thinks there's any context in which it's okay to bully and threaten reporters, he needs to be fired. And in fact, that's exactly what Biden said on his first day. Quote, I am not joking when I say this. If you are ever working with me, and I hear you treat another colleague with disrespect, talk down, I promise you I will fire you on the spot, no ifs, ands, or buts. Politico asked, Serious question on our minds this morning. 
Does this standard apply to how mid-level press aides treat reporters? Or maybe there's all the difference in the world between how Biden and his crew act in public and what they do behind the scenes. I know, it's shocking that Biden just might not be the sainted white knight many people seem to be pretending he is. If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on bittube.tv or lbry.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on bidtube.tv or lbry.tv or with the airtime extension at airtime.pagosity.tv. One of the running themes throughout the history of this podcast is not only how god-awfully violent the police are, but also how they get away with it. We stopped doing cops behaving badly stories because there are so freaking many of them, we'd never cover anything else. Plus, there's only so many times you can repeat yourself, but we've been covering problems that contribute to the issues such as qualified immunity. Another big one is police unions. They've used every bit of their considerable power to try and protect police officers who engage in terrible acts of brutality, but thankfully, it looks like they may have met their match in federal court. Unions representing NYPD officers sued to keep in place a regime of secrecy to stop the public from finding out about their bad acts, and they were delivered a loss on Tuesday. Up until last summer, the New York State Civil Rights Law was used to withhold the disciplinary record of police officers from the press, even after the accusations had been shown to be credible. The relevant part of the law reads... All personnel records used to evaluate performance toward continued employment or promotion under the control of any police agency or department of the state or any political subdivision shall be considered confidential and not subject to inspection or review without the express written consent of such police officer, except as may be mandated by lawful court order. Governor Andrew Cuomo had been fighting the statute's revocation for years until there was a critical mass of support for repeal following the murder of George Floyd. The law was repealed, and New York City said they were going, quote, to proactively publish certain types of disciplinary records and provide other records upon request consistent with its obligations under New York's Freedom of Information Law. Several police unions sued, and in July and August, a U.S. District Court judge ruled against the unions. But she did allow an exception for a small subset of the records where the officer is determined to be not guilty, which the officer in question can petition to have sealed. They appealed, but on Tuesday, the appeals court denied the appeal. Like the lower court, they found that the claims of the NYPD unions that they would be irreparably harmed by the release of such records were unpersuasive. Quote, the unions assert that law enforcement officers will have fewer employment opportunities in the future if records of the allegations against them that prove to be unfounded or unsubstantiated are disclosed. 
even though each record will reveal the outcome of the investigation. But the district court noted that future employers were unlikely to be misled by conduct records that contained dispositional designations specifying that allegations of misconduct were unsubstantiated, unfounded, or that the accused officer was exonerated. If you're so much as arrested for something, no matter how bogus, even if the charges are dropped or you're found not guilty, you have to inform any prospective employer of the arrest, and that can adversely affect your chances of being hired. But once again, police officers think different rules should apply to them. Their exoneration is on that same record, something ordinary people don't get when applying for a job, let alone an opportunity to have sealed, and that still isn't enough for them. Meanwhile, as the court noted, several other states make similar records available to the public, and yet the unions could point to no evidence anywhere that the availability of such record harms employment opportunities. The NYPD also argued that the release of these records would lead to, quote, heightened danger and safety risks to police officers. The court dismissed these claims as well, quote, we fully and unequivocally respect the dangers and risks police officers face every day, but we cannot say that the district court abused its discretion when it determined that the unions have not sufficiently demonstrated that those dangers and risks are likely to increase because of the city's planned disclosures. In arriving at that conclusion, we note again that many other states make similar misconduct records at least partially available to the public without any evidence of a resulting increase of danger to police officers. They also argued that collective bargaining agreements cannot be used to counter public disclosure laws. And all of this was outweighed by the very real harms victims face in the delay or the inability to obtain information about the status of their complaints. According to Molly Grifford at the COP Accountability Project, quote, This decision rightfully rejects the police union's baseless attempts to undermine the legislature's decisive repeal of Police Secrecy Law 50A and to continue hiding records of police discipline and misconduct. To live up to the values of transparency and accountability underlying that repeal, the city can and should immediately proceed with its plans to make police misconduct records accessible to the public, as promised by Mayor Bill de Blasio last summer. Ju Young Kang, director of Communities United for Police Reform, said, quote, Police unions have been trying to undermine and overturn the legislature and the public will that led to the repeal of 50A because they want to preserve police impunity and shield abusive officers from consequences. Today's decision from the Second Circuit affirms that the public has the right to know when police brutalize or sexually harass New Yorkers and escape discipline, in spite of police unions' baseless claims and fear-mongering. Bayer Osmi, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, said, quote, This decision should conclusively end the police union's latest attempt to shield their misconduct from public view and give force to the community's long-standing demands for transparency and accountability. And Harvard University School of Law professor Tiffany Wright said, quote, This is a huge win for transparency and for the communities across New York who bear the brunt of police violence and misconduct. These communities have a right to know the disciplinary histories of those policing their streets, and now they will. All the butthurt unions seem to be able to say was crap like, quote, Politics must not be allowed to regulate firefighters, police officers, and corrections officers to second-class status. 
In what way does this make you second-class citizens when you still enjoy far more immunity for your horrible actions than any civilian would? Accountability is part of the job. If you don't like it, go be a plumber. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. If you want another data point on how sucky the news media is, just try getting good information on the recent Texas blackouts. I hope everyone appreciates this one because it was not easy going through all the crap to try and tease out good sources with sensible examinations of what happened. People on the right want to say it's all the fault of wind power. People on the left are blaming natural gas. There's some nugget of truth on both sides, but so many politicians and pundits, including pundits posing as journalists, of whom there are a lot, are trying to use this to make hay against everything they hate and push their agendas. The main issue is an exceptionally cold winter. Texas's power grid really isn't set up for this kind of thing, so when Texans turn up their thermostats and their heaters engage, it's more than the grid is used to handling. The more fundamental issue is Texas's quasi-fascist power system. Hint, people have been using the term fascist incorrectly. This is literally a fascist system, one where supposedly independent companies are directly controlled by the state. Power companies in Texas are government-granted monopolies, as they are in most states and even around the world. And almost all of them are managed by ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Although on paper they're an independent nonprofit corporation, they're subject to direct oversight by the Public Utility Commission of Texas and the Texas State Legislature. A third of these board members live outside of Texas, including Chair Sally A. Talberg and Vice Chair Peter Crampton. Also, very few of them seem to have any actual expertise in power generation. There are a few lucky Texans who live outside of ERCOT's control, and very few, if any, of them lost power for more than a few minutes. That alone should tell you what you need to know. More than half of the state's electricity is generated by coal, and coal is proving very robust in getting Texans through the cold snap. By comparison, wind and solar are barely a blip. Solar is making these pathetic little starts but keeps faltering, and it goes away completely at night when it's coldest and they need the power the most. Wind turbines don't work as well when they're cold, and they stop working entirely when they freeze. In fact, half of Texas's wind turbines have frozen up, taking at least 12,000 megawatts of power offline. 
Wind was generating less than 6% of the needed power and solar less than a third of a percent. If wind and solar are renewable power, then why aren't they renewing? I was most curious about natural gas since northern states and countries with freezing weather have no problem with it. But while Texas's natural gas plants are working, demand for natural gas has risen since many Texans use it to heat their homes, and this accounts for much of the 300-fold spike in energy prices. Additionally, the system for delivering natural gas to the plants apparently wasn't made for freezing cold weather, meaning severe delays as the natural gas companies implemented alternative delivery methods. But to see the real elephant in the living room, follow the link in the show notes to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's information about how the extreme weather is affecting Texas's power. The main question should be, what should we be using to guarantee sustained power during such an emergency? What should we be relying on for most of our day-to-day power needs that is less likely to be affected at times like this? As you can see from the graph towards the bottom of the page, the one that's been holding its own is nuclear. Wind is failing, natural gas is taking a hit, solar is pathetic and probably always will be, coal is reliable but puts a lot of crap into the environment, so what else is there? So, basic takeaway, private is better than government, and nuclear is better than so-called renewables. But sensible people didn't need a cold snap and blackouts to tell us that. When will everybody else learn? Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to blockade this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week, I'd fully intended to make Facebook idiot extraordinaire for what seems to be a real boneheaded move, but after learning more about it, I decided that, at least this once, I'm on their side. And I'm giving biggest bogan emitter to Australia. Facebook had decided to do a complete deplatforming of pretty much anything from Australia. News, opinion, commentary, all sorts of things, even children's hospitals. It's a bit scorched earth, but unlike the rest of the internet, and unlike me most of the rest of the time, I'm on Facebook's side this time. Why? Because Australia wants them to pay them money every time someone posts a link to one of their sites. Do they not even understand what the internet is about? Apparently, a trade group led by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp have been pushing to get paid by Google and Facebook every time they quote from or even link to one of their news articles. 
Of course, the real losers will be smaller websites and podcasts like this one who would have to pay for every link, every quote, every reference if it's supported by advertising. So they've gone to government to enforce a shakedown racket, as they always do, and Australia seems to be the first one to join in. So now, when Australians try to post news articles, they get a pop-up that reads, This post can't be shared. And it's not just Australians. Anyone trying to post an article from Aussie publishers saw the same error. Publisher pages from Australia have been completely emptied out. If you charge people money to do something, fewer people will do it. Why is this so hard for Australia to figure out? I really don't get this. Why is Facebook the target of all the ire and not Australia? I, for one, think it's good that they're standing up for the basic concept of the Internet, as opposed to Google, who's been cozying up to Murdoch and his gang. The whole idea of the Internet is people linking to other sites, pages, news articles, and other items. Any law, regulation, or requirement that gets in the way of that must be opposed. Which is why we're behind Facebook on this one, and why Australia is this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's up pacify this week's Idiot And this week, it goes to the NHS for failing to implement basic sanity checks. Which figures we've known they were completely insane for some time. So check this out. Journalist Liam Thorpe was offered a COVID vaccine, being told that he was in a high-risk group because of his excess weight. Now, he could have gone, yay, vaccine, gotten the jab, and we wouldn't have blamed him in the slightest. But he thought something was weird, because he really wasn't overweight and he's in his early 30s with no underlying health problems, and he didn't feel right jumping in line ahead of people with a greater risk. So he checked with his GP, and what follows is a Rube Goldbergian sequence of fails, beginning with the fact that the UK health system relies on the completely insane BMI to determine whether or not someone is a healthy weight. We've discussed this before. The method was invented by a Belgian in the early 19th century. He wasn't even a doctor. He was an astronomer and mathematician, and he was working for an insurance company trying to figure out what the weight distribution among Belgians was. It wasn't meant to be an indicator of health. It wasn't even meant to be an indication of what a 19th century Belgian should weigh. 
The next dumb part is why any other scientific organization takes BMI seriously, since it's done by dividing your weight by the square of your height. If you're scratching your head about that, that's because you understand what any first-year physics or geometry student knows about, the square cube law. When you scale something up, as distance such as height or diameter increases, its surface area increases by a power of 2, and volume increases by a power of 3. So if you double the height of something, surface area becomes 4 times as great, and weight becomes 8 times as great. Let's say you think a 5 foot tall person should weigh 125 pounds. A 6 foot tall person is 1.2 times the height. BMI would say they should weigh 180 pounds, when according to the square cube law, it should be 216. Which means that tall people are much more likely to be wrongly considered obese, and none of it makes any sense anyway given that people don't increase in size the same way in every dimension. Which makes it all the more sad that it isn't just the NHS that's using this bogus metric, but healthcare systems and insurance companies all over the world. But that isn't even the dumbest part about this story. According to BMI, normal is 18 and a half to 25, overweight is 25 to 30, and obese is greater than 30. The largest BMI on record was 200, which was the BMI of a Saudi Arabian man who weighed over 1300 pounds. Now keeping in mind that 200 is the biggest ever reliably measured, someone should have noticed something was wrong when Thorpe's BMI was listed as 28,000. Thorpe is 6 foot 2, so that would mean his weight would be 130 tons. Now it may be the case that no human being actually looked at his BMI and it was all done by computer, but every first year programmer knows to do sanity checks on results. You'd set the extreme but sane range for the BMI, say between 15 and 200, and when BMI is calculated, you'd check that the result is between these amounts. If it isn't, you'd ask the user for verification. People make mistakes when they enter data. Sanity checks are a great way of making sure incorrect data isn't entered, which is especially important when you're inputting data about a patient into a medical database that is being used to make decisions about his health care. The high BMI occurred when someone input Thorpe's height of 6 foot 2. They put it in as 6.2. Now, you might be saying, well, 0.2 feet is 2.4 inches. So that would have made him 6 feet 2.4 inches, so that's within half an inch of his height. So what's the issue? The issue is the computer, for some reason, assumed it was centimeters. The shortest person ever was 54 centimeters, so that might be another sanity check. Make sure the height the user entered is between 54 centimeters and 272 centimeters, the height of the tallest man ever. Put in something outside those values, and again, the computer would ask the user to make sure they got that right. It's very fortunate that this happened over something innocuous like a vaccine. Worst case scenario, one person would have gotten the vaccine a little before he was supposed to. But what about other mistakes, such as the amount of medication someone should get? Mistakes like this cost lives. 
A similar issue didn't cost lives, but it did cost American taxpayers $125 million when the Mars Climate Orbiter was lost when JPL engineers assumed that Lockheed Martin had given them acceleration curve data in newton seconds when they'd actually been given in pound seconds, making the result off by a factor of 4.4. Units, units! Here's hoping someone at the NHS gets the message and implements the basic checks every first year coder knows to do. From using BMI to not using sanity checks, they failed at both medicine and IT. Which means the UK health system just has to be this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this If I Want Trouble, I'll Phone the Police edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Robert Heinlein. The police of a state should never be stronger or better armed than the citizenry. An armed citizenry willing to fight is the foundation of civil freedom. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.